Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. So you've heard a raft of positive vaccine news, right? So the latest headline, Pfizer's vaccine showing a 95% effective rate, just pipping Moderna's 94.5% rate. But there are significant differences in terms of how much care will need to be taken in the distribution. Pfizer's will need a chill temperature of minus 70 degrees. Uh, Moderna's can be stored in a regular refrigerator. You've also heard the news, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has bought more than $5 billion worth of AbbVie, Bristol-Myers, Squibb, Merck and Pfizer stock last quarter. So I know many people are wondering, uh, we, we, tend, we, we, we seem to be able to see who's leading in the coronavirus vaccine rate. And since um, there are some only six companies that are actually listed on the U.S. stock exchange, should you buy a basket of these pharma companies or should you maybe just invest equally in all six of these stocks that are listed on the U.S. stock exchange? Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, BioNTech, Novavax, for example. Uh, we're going to cover that today. We're also going to be looking at the thinking behind activist billionaire Bill Ackman's latest bet and why possibly Masayoshi Son is intent on a cash position in today's market. That's all coming up. I'm chatting today with Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. He always helps us step into different ways of thinking, particularly the investor's mindset. How are you, Arun? I'm very good, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me. Great to speak with you. So we've heard Moderna's positive vaccine news and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway saying it's begun investing in these four large drug makers. Arun, first question, are you still not interested in pharma stocks? Is it still all on your too hard to think about list? It sadly is, Michelle, and thank you for remembering. Otherwise, I'd have to bring it up again. But no, it's extremely complicated, right? To be able to know the nuances of which drug can potentially succeed versus not like which part of the FDA pipeline they're in, what can be the addressable market size for these, how long the patent will last vis-a-vis the pricing and hence, you know, benefit to the bottom line. So from that perspective, like an individual stock, and I've tried reading up on them, it's just way too difficult to know which one is going to come out to be the winner. But, you know, it's interesting from the perspective of Warren Buffett, who obviously has that circle of competence and many, many more, Mm. uh, you know, just taking us back to like last week's conversation, right? The whole, how do we structure ourselves for a Biden portfolio? And pharma was going to be one sector that was not going to do so well because the Democrats were going to try and bring up this whole universal health care, try and clamp down on large pharma, being able to price exorbitant rates on their medicine and so on and so forth. So it just seems like a bit of a contrarian play to the politics side of things. But that's a very Warren Buffett-esque play, wherein he doesn't think about what's going to be the price action over the next day, week, month, even years for that matter, but it's much more of like a longer term approach. What was different and contrary to what typically Buffett and Munger do uh, off Berkshire Hathaway is investing into sectors as a whole. And these are guys who literally came out saying diversification are for people who don't understand what they're doing. So it's, you know, it's not to that extreme an extent because they still picked up the healthcare sector. But it's interesting to see, uh, you know, a couple of months back, he plonked down like five or six billion dollars 
into Japanese trading houses. And then along comes this news where he's putting in like 5 billion plus in a basket of pharmaceutical stocks. So it's the fact that he has $150 billion of cash to deploy might lead him to feel that, you know what, individual stocks, you just can't deploy that kind of capital into individual stocks. So he has to start going after sectors as a whole. So it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is evolving its investing hypothesis, sadly, in the fact that, and it's a good problem to have, but just having too much cash in the bank. All right. So that's Buffett's possible positioning. But what do you make of the argument that since we're at this stage of the vaccine race and we're only seeing six public companies in the U.S. with these late stage vaccine candidates that are actually trading on the U.S. stock exchange. Is that not a strong argument to look at that sector? Most definitely. I mean, that and also I would say the sheer valuation of them, right? These have been beaten down quite substantially in this uh, year-to-date rally, or for that matter, going back a couple of years. So from the perspective of fundamentals, yes. From the perspective of truly being able to understand what the long-term, uh, sure, you know, I'm sure they'll have a massive tailwind on the back of this COVID vaccine, but to be able to price something not fully knowing what the longer-term future holds is sadly something that I am not uh, capable to do. But from a perspective of an investor, a retail investor who might be more savvier than that, you know, rather, if you don't have $5 billion to deploy, which is pretty much most people, being able to invest into a very cost-effective ETF, mm-hmm. and there are various healthcare ETFs out there, mm-hmm. that's something that's relatively easy to do without incurring the transaction costs. Something that Warren Buffett could not do because he's deploying that kind of capital But for a retail investor, absolutely, there are easy ways to get access to that entire basket of stocks through just one underlying. Mm, So look at a basket of perhaps these late stage COVID vaccine stocks. It it could be interesting, right? Just purely on the back of will there be a very decent share price pop based on uh, you know, as and when more results of uh, the vaccine trials come out and they start going into mass production, the market size for this is pretty clear, right? It's going to be like six or seven billion doses, give or take, depending on if it's one dose or two doses, etc. So from that perspective, and you can assume you can model some kind of a reasonable price to this obviously heavily subsidized by the respective governments of each country, mm-hmm. and that the fact that they have to deploy to people literally as soon as it's ready. So from that perspective, some amount of modeling can be done. And if people want to take uh, you know, that kind of a plate, then there are easy ways to do that. We wait and hope for Aaron to move pharma stocks off from his too hard <laughs> to think about pile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, one scary thing for me, though, on the back of this news was uh, the other equity investments that or divestments that Berkshire Hathaway made, which was selling out a lot of his bank stocks. He sold out uh, Costco, which is like this massive uh, discount retailer. Mm. And that was quite surprising because Charlie Munger loves Costco and he's been loving it for the last like 30, 40 years. Banks are something that Warren Buffett scaled into quite dramatically Uh, during the great financial crisis, and even as recently as like two or three years ago. But seeing him sell out, uh, it was Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, uh, Trend, J.P. Morgan's uh, stock, and I think he just bought uh, Bank of America. Mm. So from the perspective of a person who actually 
think there's quite a lot of value in bank stocks, mm-hmm. seeing, you know, the oracle of value investing uh, sell out a bunch of his shares mm-hmm. is something to be a little bit concerning for me. So I'm going to do a bunch of deep dive analysis over the weekend to see if I have to change my mind or not. Fantastic. Well, you know, while we're on that theme, where do you where do you see investors de-intensifying bets on? We know that, you know, at-home stocks are now sort of almost a bad word. So Zoom, Peloton, Netflix stocks are among the names that have been declining after Moderna's vaccine announcement. Where do you see de-intensifying bets uh, concentrating? I mean, honestly, these guys had such a huge, massive run-up post the March lows. Uh, To some extent, was that warranted? Yes. Did did the price action potentially overshoot the valuation of what the company does deserve? Dare I say yes. Wherein, you know, after a recent pop-up in the shares, algo trading, momentum trading took over and these stocks were like hitting, you know, circuit breakers. They were going up like 5-10% on a daily basis for a number of months. So the fact that uh, they've somewhat corrected, it might actually be healthy. Like, you know, take a little bit of a breather, Mm -hmm. see how the actual results, the quarterly results of these companies come out, see whether that kind of growth is justified and whether they're, you know, honestly fantastic business models on paper can actually be realized in terms of generating true underlying profit. And then maybe investors can try and reload on those stocks to see what happens based on realized earnings to some extent, to at least see if that trajectory of growth is being maintained or not. Now, just because the COVID vaccine comes out, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like people are going to disconnect their Netflix subscriptions, right? Like uh, it's it become such an integral part of human society. Is it, does that warrant the hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap and whether this specific company is able to come up and generate additional content, which is quite expensive, especially during COVID times, whether they're able to continuously do that to ensure that people stay plugged on to their specific ecosystem and not switch over to Apple Plus or Disney, etc. I think that's going to be the big question mark where at current share prices, is there a large enough safety of margin? There, I say probably not. All right. Are you seeing other areas where there is a rapid de-intensifying of bets? So, uh, largely speaking, you know, it's the stocks that ran up the most, wherein investors decided to take money off the table. Mm -hmm. And this is across the board, right? Not just like specific sectors, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, your Netflix, Peloton, Zoom, etc. But a number of other investors have started to hoard cash. They started taking contrarian plays. You know, you mentioned in the beginning of your segment, Blackman doing that. Uh, Masasan also, uh, you know, increasing his cash allocation. So we are seeing a lot more of the savvier investors starting to take a little bit more of a prudent approach, realizing fully well that a vaccine is quite imminent. But at the same time, the number of cases are spiking. Mm-hmm. Will there be able to be a vaccine over the next two or three months? Probably not. So just taking some money off the table after a huge run-up pretty much across the sectors, I would say, mm-hmm. might be a very prudent thing. All right. Well, speaking of investors taking money off the table, let's look at some some bets. Bill Ackman once correctly bet that until Congress and the Fed acted, markets would tank, corporate debt would rise. In February, Ackman started buying insurance on various bond indexes. 
based on his hunch that investors would abandon riskier securities in those indexes as the pandemic spread. He was right then. Uh, Ackman has taken yet another bet. He's trying it again. Uh, his initial bet was said to be the single best trade of all time, and it turned $27 million into $2.6 billion. Arun, help us understand the thinking behind Ackman's latest bet. Sure. So... From a top-down approach, it makes a lot of sense, right? And uh, literally his quote was, the same bet is available on the exact same terms as if there had never been a fire before. And by fire, he obviously means the COVID pandemic. So from the perspective of have the credit markets gotten extremely frothy uh, on the back of the Fed Reserve? Absolutely. So from the perspective of if you can get in very cheap insurance, credit insurance, something that sadly retail investors like us do not have that option of uh, because this requires like various ISDAs and CSAs to be signed with banks to be able to get you that leverage. But from the perspective of just taking a step back, realizing fully well that he's quite heavily invested in equities still. So his angle is a bit different from Masasan where he's still quite bullish equities, but at the same time, he is able to take on a very cheap hedge that can potentially give him magnified returns in case the markets do correct. And that's exactly what he did come, you know, towards like end of Jan or beginning of Feb, where that one month position gave him like a two and a half billion dollar profit. Ethically speaking, though, you know, uh, I remember the day he took off this bet was Right before that, he came on to CNBC and claimed that the world is ending, the U.S. needs to go on a one-month holiday, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So ethically speaking, that's a bit questionable. But from the perspective of pure monetizing a very cheap insurance play through credit default swaps, it does make a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. And as you say, he's still invested. Uh, Pershing Square just uh, bolstered their profits, uh, bolstered their investments in Berkshire Hathaway, Hilton, Lowe's, Restaurant Brands International, Agilent, and they reestablished their stake in Starbucks as well. All right. Let's turn to, to the other position, Masayoshi Sun, making a big move to cash, selling some soft bank investments. He's intent, he says, on keeping his strategy of big bets on tech companies, looking particularly at AI companies. Um, is he pointing towards something in the market or is this just sort of a spin on the fact that so much was lost on WeWork and so this position had to be taken? You know, it was a really interesting interview with uh, Andrew Sorkin, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of questions were asked and he gave a lot of insights into the way he thinks. And the guy is an enigma, right? The, the mm -hmm. kind of outside bets he takes, be it in the open like public financial markets or private space, across the board. And for that matter, his own share price, right? Like when it dropped down to close to 2,500 uh, yen, he was sitting there and seeing this, uh, you know, his own company trading at a 75% discount to the assets uh, on his balance sheet. So he was like, okay, this is the perfect time for me to buy. And now he's sitting very pretty where the share price is at 7,000 yen. From the perspective of him apparently uh, unleashing like $80 billion worth of asset sales, and that's his net cash position right now, whether it was him or whether it was more uh, Elliott Management, who basically took, I think they're the second largest shareholder in the company. When they took that stake, he, in a way, kind of strong-armed Masa-san for what it's worth to say, look, you're, you 
you know, you set up this massive conglomerate, but the market is not realizing the value of this conglomerate. You have to start selling off your assets and start buying back shares. So from that perspective, was it fortuitous timing? Probably. Did Elliott Management make a truckload of money, along with Masasan, of course? Absolutely. But from the perspective of Masasan's longer-term thinking of being able to deploy capital and large amounts of capital in potential unicorns or unicorn startups in the AI space, etc., that does not seem to have changed one bit. When uh, Sorkin asked Masasan about, oh, you know, the WeWork debacle, what do you think? He literally came back saying, you know, Adam Newman, this guy is a phenomenal person. He's, did he make mistakes? Yes. Mm. Is he going to come back into the market and do something even greater for the world? Yes. This person's, uh, you know, a, a huge optimist to the point of he's willing to deploy billions of dollars in private companies uh, with untested business models, something that the venture capital world has never, ever seen in the past. Because before it was more of an aspect of I will deploy, you know, a couple of million dollars or even tens of millions of dollars and spread out the risk amongst tens or hundreds of companies, knowing fully well that 90% of companies are going to go bankrupt. Over here, Masasan took that to be the complete opposite, where he's, you know, completely changed the paradigm of investing in the private space, which is, you know, all kudos to him but we can literally see the crazy volatility in his underlying share price. And is that something that a public company should be doing or whether it should be like a private fund management, I think is a big question mark. And you add to that the kind of speculation that he's undertaking in the public market space also, where, you know, I think a couple of weeks back, headlines came out where he lost $4 billion in public market equity trading. And yes, he had made like three or $4 billion a couple of months before that. All of this stuff takes place really well in a private fund, whether it's supposed to be taking the same kind of risk in a public market equity. That's, you know, questionable, I would say. Okay, before we let you go, um, Arun, we see this morning, you know, a sort of a tug of war with markets. There's good news on the vaccine front. Um, at the same time, investors seem to be walking this line of a balancing act, looking ahead for six to 12 months, envisioning a return to normal. But we're seeing a spike in COVID cases. The U.S. in particular may need to brace for a rough winter. So what, what sort of themes are you trading on? So I personally don't look at the macro news uh, that much, to be honest. Uh, obviously, the COVID cases are quite scary. Uh, from my perspective, I think there are some sectors that are still quite interesting, and that would be on the infrastructure space, in the renewable space, and, you know, sadly, contrary to Warren Buffett, I personally feel it's still in the banking space. Uh, so those are a couple of sectors that I look at in general, but it's more of a very bottom-up approach of trying to identify individual unique companies that have a very stable uh, track record in the past of steady earnings growth. Uh, they have a very solid competitive moat that will not be disrupted by just, say, an Amazon coming into your space. And, of course, extremely trustworthy management, because at the end of the day, they are the stalwarts of your capital. And they have to be able to figure out whether that capital should be deployed within the company to try and help the company grow further mm -hmm. or try to pass along dividends. So from that perspective, uh, you know, nothing has changed in my underlying thesis. Mm -hmm. There are certain red flags that are being raised, though, which can be truly disruptive. 
a couple of them, for example, like Masasan brought up that this COVID pandemic can get very scary over the next two or three months right. because the vaccine will not be able to be mass produced. If this leads to one large bankruptcy, will there be a domino effect? And he's obviously referring to my erstwhile company, Lehman Brothers, and what massive damage that sadly caused in the real world economy. Right. The other big red flag, uh, what is Donald Trump going to do from 19th uh, November to early January? There are all these rumors and statements coming out that he's going to tighten the screws in China to such a large extent that it will be very difficult for any new president to come on board and immediately try and tweak those things. And that's a massive question mark, right? That could be a huge doomsday scenario to the markets where if the U.S. and China decide to go in all-out war in terms of like trade wars, will it be possible for the next, the incumbent, the upcoming president, the president-elect Joe Biden, to be able to try and change course and make, you know, like try to unify the world again? Uh, another big uh, risk that I'm seeing in the market is the growing uh, defaults in China on the onshore bond space. And maybe this is a play that, you know, Bill Ackman's trying to do that is going to like, you know, what, what's happening in China might start reverberating in the U.S. and other places also. Is this going to be something where, you know, the Chinese government tries to control everything within the country, but are they trying to let the markets play a more efficient role? Are they trying to open up the markets a little bit more? And if they can manage that, and if the pricing of underlying assets can be undertaken in a much more sophisticated manner, not just because you're backed by a state-owned enterprise, but the market forces can dictate what the prices are for these things, mm. that could be good. But does that lead to a slippery slope where, you know, once you let the genie out of the lamp, like what's going to happen, no one knows. I think that's something that people should be paying quite close attention to. China is, you know, the second largest economy in the world. And the after effects of if there's a massive spate of defaults over there onshore, what will that affect be, especially sitting in Singapore and for the Asian investor? Absolutely terrific. A lot of investor intelligence to crunch on there. Arun, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure as always. Thank you for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, joining us in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.